All right, Hebrews chapter 12. Um, We started this chapter last week. We're coming to the conclusion of our study through the book of Hebrews. Um, We made it through the first four verses, and we should finish the chapter out today, and then one chapter left, and then we're going into the book of Galatians next. So if you want to read ahead, I would encourage you to do so. In preparation for uh, studying a new book, I always read in one sitting... It's a little bit easier when it's a, it's a book like Galatians where it's smaller than a lot, but in one setting, reading from the very beginning all the way to the end uninterrupted, that way it helps you to get the whole picture of what the message is, so it's a very good way to study Scripture, and even when you're studying the Bible on your own and you begin a new book, I'd encourage you to do that. Sit down and just read quickly through it, and then come back and, and read it um, and break it down and study it out for yourself, but we came to chapter 10 a few weeks ago, and chapter 10 was a transitional chapter towards the end of the book, and everything that we read at the end of chapter 10 um, carries us through the end of this, this book, but everything before leading up to that, where we talked about the, the superiority of Jesus Christ and how Jesus is better in every way, um, specifically in regards to the Hebrew people and Judaism and the Old Covenant and the, and the sacrificial system and the... Levitical priesthood and, and um, the Old Covenant and all the things that were attached to it, we saw how Jesus was better. And so with that buildup from all the chapters leading up to chapter 10, we are now being called to take that information and do something with it to apply it to our lives. And at the end of chapter 10, we read this statement where we are told that the just shall live by faith. And I'm reiterating that again because we get more points of instruction for how that practically plays out in our lives. What does it mean to live by faith? Those who are positionally right in regards to our relationship with God through the work that Jesus Christ has has done for us, saved, forgiven, restored, redeemed, all of these things that, that now give us this pure conscience as we now have right standing before God. And so as a result of that, we are the just, and we as the just live by faith. And, and, and we speak about faith and living by faith, and we had the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and we were given examples of those who had already lived by faith before us and got to the end receiving the reward. And so we have the examples and we have the definitions by which we can now guide our lives as we move forward. But how do we do that and, and what kind of a, a mindset we have is important as well. And so as we began the chapter... We were encouraged, if you remember, in the first four verses, to run the race with endurance. That's the language that was given. To run with endurance as we live our lives by faith so that we might receive the promise of eternal life that God has set before us. To patiently be waiting on God. To cling to Him, rely upon Him, and trust in Him as we move day by day through this life that we've been called to live. Endurance. Persevering. And in verse 2, we were told, to run with endurance the race that was set before us while keeping our eyes on Jesus. Literally, the language there is more applicable to say fixed upon Jesus. And when we talked about that, the idea behind it is is that when we fix our eyes on someone or something, we have to look away from everything else. And that's the idea. Look away from these things that might hinder our ability to run with endurance. Fix our eyes on Jesus and the admonition that was given alongside that as we know that Jesus is our example, our motive, our inspiration is that he, it says there at the beginning of this chapter, is the author and the finisher 
of our faith. We start with Him, we continue with Him, and we finish with Him. It's all about Jesus. And in the first four verses, we are given, really I would say, the first of the four instructions that are in this chapter. We're going to go through the other three this morning, but we looked at the first one last week. And these, these instructions are practical tools, if you will, that help us run with endurance so that we get to the finish line. But it's more than that. It's so that we run with joy, so that we have joy in this life. Uh, The Hebrew people were weary and they were discouraged. And the author of the book of Hebrews not only wanted them to continue to the end, but he wanted them to enjoy themselves along the way in this life that we have in Christ, to run with joy. And the first instruction was to lay aside every weight. Literally, the things of this life that can hinder us from, from running the race, the things of this life that can rob our joy. And we talked about that last week. But furthermore, we're also told to lay away Lay aside sin, the sin that so easily ensnares us. And we talked about how sin can be a snare and some of the consequences as a result of a sin in a believer's life. But we also looked at the specific application of it in regards to the sin of unbelief. That's what the author was referring to, as this is really what's the root of what the Hebrew people were struggling with. Unbelief, unbelief that was causing them to waver in their faith. And these things... That, that hinder us and ensnare us, they can, they can cause us to become weary. They can cause us to become discouraged in our faith. And as we continue on through the rest of this chapter, if you're taking notes this morning, in addition to that first instruction, there are three other points of instruction that are given. The first is in verses 5 through 11. And we'll read that in a minute here, but it can be summed up by saying this. We cannot forget who we are. Who does God say we are? Who is our identity in? What is our purpose in life? Where, where, where do we find value as a human being that affects everything that we're called to do in every way that we live our life? Who are we? Cannot forget it. And then in verses 12 through 17, we're told in a second mean of instruction as we continue on, third in total, is that we must keep in mind that God always has our best interest in mind. And, and we can tend to doubt that as we journey through this life and we encounter different things. God has our best interest in mind. So we don't forget who we are, remembering that God has our best interest in mind. And then lastly, the final instruction in this chapter for this call to run our lives by faith, to live our lives by faith as we run is in verses 18 through 29. And it's to remember this. To not forget this, but to remember it's all about God's grace. It's, a, it's about God's grace. Us being a recipient of God's grace. Us being those who live according to God's grace. And also us who allow God's grace to flow through our lives into the lives of others around us. And so in verse 5, we now pick back up and read on. And the author transitions with this statement. And have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the exhortation, the encouragement, the admonishment? which speaks to you as sons. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. This is what he wants them to remember, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked for him, by him. Why? For, for the Lord, God, loves. For whom he loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, In other words, if you're not discouraged, if you receive it, if you endure the chastening of God, He deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which 
all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who have corrected us. We've paid them respect. Shall we not all the more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, these earthly fathers, for a few days chastened us as seems best to them. But he, God, our heavenly Father, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward, it yields this, the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who have, and underline this word, those who have been trained by it. And Father, we know that you're training us, Lord, that you're building us up, that you're preparing us and equipping us for this life that you've given us and called us to live. I pray, Father, that we would see this morning from these instructions, Lord, just how to live this life full of joy. Father, if we are weary and if we are discouraged, Father, I pray you would help us to identify the reasons for why and to see the answer, to see the fix, Lord, that we would put our, again, our faith in, in what you tell us today and apply it, Lord, that we would live according to what you've commanded us and what you've made known to us, the truth that's found in your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in the first four verses, I'm not going to go back over them, but we were told to look to the example of Jesus, right? He's our example in every way, and he's the best example because everything that Jesus said, he lived it out perfectly. There was no contradiction in his life. There was no hypocrisy in his life. We can look to him and see the words that he spoke and then saw how he lived and, and see the example and go, we get it. We understand it. We can do this, and we're to do that looking to him as we run with endurance in our, and live our lives by faith. And now, so we're called to look to Jesus, but now we're called to look to something else, to an additional thing, specifically the assurance of God's love for us. Look to Jesus, but also look to the assurances of God's love for us. And these are to help us, to give us endurance when we run the race. If you know that God loves you, if we have that settled in our hearts and in our minds, if we know that God's for us, when it feels like the whole world's against us, we can receive that endurance to continue on. And in these next verses of instruction, we're called to, first of all, remember, to not forget an exhortation, a statement, an encouragement, a, a truth which he says speaks to us as sons. And one of the reasons these Hebrew people these believers, these early believers, one of the reasons they were discouraged and one of the reasons they were weary was not just because of the things that they were going through, but because they saw no reason by their kind of understanding for why God would allow for these difficult things to arise in their lives. We've talked about it. They were being persecuted. They were being forsaken by family members. They were losing their jobs and, and their businesses for following after Christ. They were suffering in very real and practical ways. And in their estimation of things, they were going, we've done the right thing. We've chose the right thing. We're following after you. We believe in you. We love you. We know you're true. And yet all of these hard things are still coming upon our lives. How does this work together? Are you for us? Do you love us? These were the kinds of things that were popping in their minds. But in doing so, we see that they forgot. All throughout the Scripture, it's one of the most probably recognizable statements that God gives as an instruction to His kids is to remember. To remember. And I think the reason why we're told to remember so often throughout Scripture is because we forget. 
We easily forget things and truths and promises and who God is and, and what God says that, 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 that cause us to doubt when we forget. And they forgot some basic principles regarding specifically the training of God, the chastening of the Lord as we read here. And I think that we too, in our humanness, are also prone to forget these same principles surrounding who God is and His training of us. And the fact of the matter is, is, is that much of the difficulty in our call to run with endurance as we live by faith comes from these words, you have forgotten. We have this um, idea of how things should be even though God has made it clear that it's going to be like this and not like this. And perhaps these principles regarding God's disciplines are things that we maybe remember in our mind when we logically think them out and perceive them in, in relationship to what we know to be true about God and what we know to be true about God's Word. But ultimately, guys, I think we forget them in our hearts, meaning when we're conflicted, when the emotions are running high, when we're, when we're feeling certain ways, we doubt in our hearts. And truthfully, we must remember them again. We must keep these truths planted in the front of our minds in order that we would have joy as we run this race. In other words, this is what I mean. In times of trial, in times of hardship, we forget who God is. We forget who He is as He has proven Himself in the past to us to be. I know God is this way because I have had this experience with Him and this experience with Him and this experience with Him. But yet in the moment when we're confronted with another challenge, another difficulty, times of doubt, and we forget really who God is even though we know Him. And we forget this, who we are to God. Who we are to God. Who God says we are. And we question or doubt in those moments, is God even still in control? Does He love us? And I think we can feel this way because this is what we know. We know that God is all-powerful. The Word here is sovereign. He's in charge of all things. He knows the beginning from the end. He's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And we know that, that even though he's, He has the power to stop the bad things that happen, He does not always stop them, does He? But we also know that God can never be the author of evil. Scripture makes that clear. He allows for people to choose evil. We rationalize this and we think about this in our mind. And, and he even can use the evil choices that people makes to, the, to, to, to work out his good purposes in our lives. We know Romans 8.28 where God says that he works all things together for good for those who love him. And we know that he will even do it, even if it's only to demonstrate his justice and his righteousness in, in contrast to the evil that we see going on in this world or the evil that may affect us in a negative way. So as we run with endurance and live by faith, which is trusting in God, doing no matter what God says, and doing, doing what God says no matter what, we need to remember these two things, that we are God's kids. We're His kids. He's our Heavenly Father. He loves us as children. And that God who loves us, loves us like a father. He's our Heavenly Father, the Father of spirits, and He is he considers us to be his kids. And these verses that we read here as the author continues on, he illustrates this. He brings this forth for us. 
And what he says here in verse 5 in this call to remember as he points out that we're sons, he's, another way of saying it, he's saying to the Hebrew people who are weary, to the Hebrew people who are discouraged in this life they've been called to live. They don't have joy right now. He simply says to them to begin with in this call to endure, he says, have you forgotten who your dad is? Have you forgotten who your dad is? You see, if we continue on with the illustration of being in a race, that's how this chapter started. Run the race with endurance. And if we continue on with the context of that thought into these next verses, we could then also see, as the author continues on, that God who is our Father, who loves us, is also our coach. And that would make us the coach's kid. And the point is, there are many advantages to having your dad as a coach, as the one who's responsible for teaching and training us so that we prosper and have success. You're living with the coach. And so at the end of verse 5 and verse 6, the exhortation being referenced that is intended to remind us that God is our Father who loves us and that we are His kids, right, is a quote from Proverbs 3. Verses 11 and 12. And it talks about these words that are kind of cringy when you think about this is how God interacts with us and, and really how all loving parents are called to interact with their own kids. And the words are chastening, rebuking, or even scourging. In fact, it tells us to not despise these things and it tells us to not despise them because I think we do. We despise them. And this is how God our Father coaches us. Literally, this is how He's training us and teaching us. And what we're told here is He's doing these things for our benefit. He's doing these things for our advantage. And I don't know about you, the coaches that I had when I was growing up had me do things that did not seem very pleasant in the moment. Matter of fact, my father, I remember, he had me do many things growing up as I was his son in his home, doing many things that that I didn't really seem very pleasant in the moment. Yet the truth is, is everything that these coaches had me do was so that I would be strong. It was so that I'd be prepared to succeed in the competition. And likewise, all of us who are parents, we know that, that at times when we're training our kids, when we're teaching our kids, right, it's necessary to discipline them. It's necessary to do things that they don't like to do. But we do these things, why? Because we, we love them, right? We care about them. We want the best for them. We know that ultimately these things will be for their benefit. And in the same way, remember this. God chastens us as his kids because he loves us and he ultimately is teaching us. He's training us and strengthening us so that we can live our lives by faith with joy and run with endurance. And the Greek word here for chasten is the word paedia, and it means this, the whole training and education of the child. And when we see this, God is concerned with the whole of our being, just not the behavior, but the inward part of us at the heart level. He wants us to be different on the inside. He wants to transform us from the inside out. That's the purpose of his discipline. That's the purpose of his training. And in regards to this Greek word, it says that it relates to the development of the mind and the morals. And it employs the purpose it employs these things, the discipline for the purpose of commands 
and admonitions and reproofs. But the truth of the matter is, is, is this, when you think about it, at least I know this to be true in my life and even with my own kids and you and probably your kids as well, when you're the one who's being trained, when you're the one who's being coached, or the one, if you're the child, who's being disciplined by the father, it's common to think that the painful things that you're asked to do or that are being done to you is because these people don't care about me. That's pretty common. That the painful things that you're asked to do or that are being done to you isn't because they love you. Likewise, when we're experiencing God's hand of discipline, guys, it's really easy to move to this place where we assign a wrong motive to God. Where we doubt His love for us. Where we doubt His best for us. When in fact the opposite is true. When we are told to be assured that we are being disciplined because we're His kids whom He loves. He loves us as His children. And this is why verse 7 says to endure the chastening of God because He only chastens those who are His. He only chastens those who are His. Meaning, like you're probably the only one who disciplines or spanks your child, your own children. God is the only one who spanks His children. In fact, God's chastening, hear this, is His comforting assurance that He considers us to be His own. That's a pretty cool thing when you think about it. It's proof, it's assurance that we're His. And so in light of verse 1, where we are told to run with endurance, we need to realize that the discipline is a key to endurance. And think about it in regards to any kind of sporting event where you're called to endure. Where we're called to bring our bodies into subjection, meaning we make them do what we want them to do even though it's not pleasant in the moment. It's a key to endurance. We cannot have this characteristic of enduring when things, get dis- when things get difficult if we have not been trained, if we've not been disciplined, if we've not been chastened along the way by a Father who loves us. Therefore, in all of this, as verses 10 and 11 points out, look here as we continue on, God who loves us has His best interest in our mind. That's what we conclude. That's the rational thought process. Even, and even if the chastening is painful, it means it, it is the means by which God will do this for us. It is the means by which God will drive out our rebellious ways. It is the means by which God will deal with our sinful attitudes which keep us from living by faith. It's the means by which God will produce the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Literally what that means is us doing things the right way. It's us doing whatever God says no matter what it is, with with full confidence and assurance that this is the right thing to do because God has said it. And so run with endurance. Lay aside the weights that so hinder us and the sin that ensnares us. And run with endurance, accepting the hand of God's discipline, remembering these things. We're His kids. And that He loves us. And that he has his best, our best interests in mind. And so in verse 12, the author goes on with this transitional word, therefore, right? As we read in, in uh, verse 12 of, ch- of chapter 12, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down in the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness with out which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any, but a, lest any root of bitterness spring, springing up cause 
cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. In other words, the things that Esau wanted, he did, he regretted, and, and, but he couldn't, couldn't be made right. Then what had been lost had been lost because of decisions that he made, even though he was sad and sorry for it. And the, therefore, if you look back to verse 12 here, at the beginning of verse 12, it is a specific reference to what we just read to, to the fact that God has our best interest in mind, right? So we take that. God has our best interest in mind when he is training us, when he's disciplining us, when he's allowing for hard or difficult things to come into our lives that he will use to work out his good purposes. Therefore, in light of this truth, in light of this, we're told in verses 13 and 12 and 13 to do a few things to respond in a certain way, to take action in our lives as we journey on. And the first is here just to strengthen the hands that hang down. And the thought behind this statement regarding a person whose hands who are hanging down is used to describe this person. It's a person who's given up. A person who has an attitude of having been defeated. It's over. I quit. It's a person who is maybe even um, pouting or feeling sorry for themselves. Has your kids ever done that when you've disciplined them? Have we ever done that when God's disciplined us or when he's allowed for things in our lives to train us that are not pleasant to us, that we despise? It's like, can't believe God would let that happen to me. I'm his favorite. Doesn't he know this? Does he even love me? The hands that hang down. The second instruction in light of knowing that God has our best in mind, it says, is to strengthen the feeble knees. And the word feeble in the Greek is, the word here is parlou. parlou. And And it may seem like an odd word in this context because this word is used to describe a person who is having a seizure. You think about that. We've all seen someone perhaps who has had a seizure. Their bodies is shaking out of control violently to some degree at some point. And maybe if you've had that, you've experienced that firsthand. It's a very scary thing. Someone who, who, is, who is having a seizure. But in this instance, when we take that imagery and that definition in regards to what we're being told here, in, 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 in regards to feeble knees shaking or knocking together, It's the idea or the picture of someone who has lost their confidence, someone who is afraid, someone who is weary, because even even people who um, have run marathons that I've seen when they've crossed the finish line, it's like their legs are jello. They just don't work anymore. They just start shaking and they can't even stand up. They have to have people carry them and lift them off of the race course. And and, 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 and that's the idea, is, is, is an utter lack of control. And, and then lastly, in verse 3, then knowing, in light of knowing that God has our best in mind, we're told the third instruction here, to make straight paths for our feet so we may experience healing. And the idea behind making straight paths for our feet is once again describing this word righteousness. Turning and heading down God's path 
so that we do not become further injured. And that's what happens when we veer off the path that God has already paved for us as we follow Jesus Christ, looking unto Him, moving down the road that He's already gone. When we veer to the right or the left, this is where the danger's at. This is where the injuries come. This is where we stumble. This is where we fall. And yet, God wants us to be healed. He wants us to experience this life with joy, with healing, with restoration, with redemption. And just to be clear... As we read this here, I want you to understand that the author, as he's placing these things down, he's not saying, he's not saying, hey, wimps, toughen up. Strengthen your hands. Strengthen your knees. Get back on the right path. It's not this admonition to, if we would say in our culture, to man up and, and make sure you're doing it right. Rather, what we see going on here, because we have to make this clear, is none of us has the ability to strengthen ourselves. Think about that. When someone is weak, if someone's having a seizure or they're, they've just ran a marathon, they, they, can't, they can't lift themselves off of the, 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 the race course once their body's given out. If somebody is immobilized and paralyzed by fear, there's nothing they can muster up in themselves to undo what's going on. And so we must look at this in the right context. We don't have the ability to strengthen ourselves when we're weak. We don't have the ability to strengthen ourselves when we're feeble. We don't have the ability to, to, to be righteous or to, 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 to live in righteousness. None of us do apart from, from Christ Jesus. And so what is the admonition? And, and this is something when we, when we consider a whole counsel of God's word, this is something that God promises to do for us when we come to him through faith. When we live by faith, when we put our trust in Him, where we got, I'm weak, I'm broken, I'm feeble, I'm a fearful, I need help. You know, one of my favorite examples of this is found in the book of Joshua, where we read about Joshua taking over as the leader of the nation of Israel after Moses' death. At that time, even though Joshua had much military experience as he served under Moses as the commander of the armies of Israel, Joshua was afraid. He lacked courage. He was overwhelmed with the idea to be Moses' replacement and lead the nation of Israel. And taking over Moses' position at the new, as a new leader and then leading the nation across the Jordan River to take possession of the promised land where there was an enemy there that, that God says was greater than them was an intimidating thing. It was a fearful thing for Joshua. Nevertheless, in the face of Joshua's fears, think about this. God spoke to Joshua several times, multiple times, commanding him. It wasn't an instruction as far as a suggestion goes. God commanded Joshua. He said to him, be strong, Joshua. Be of good courage. And yet this was not something that Joshua could muster up on his own. Joshua had to come to God to find his strength, to find his courage. And God continued to tell Joshua with the command to be strong, with the command to be courageous. He went on to tell him each and every instance of where his strength would come from. Joshua, this is where your strength will come from. Be strong. This is where your courage will come from. Be courageous. And God pointed him, Joshua, to himself. God lovingly reminded Joshua that he could be strong, that he could be courageous because the Lord was his God. The Lord is his God. And that his God would be with him wherever he would go. And that his God would fight for him wherever he fought. And this same strengthening was something that God had promised to the nation as a whole in, 
in, through the prophet Isaiah with the very same language that we read here in Hebrews chapter 12, where in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 4, it says this, Strengthen the hands, the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong and do not fear. And here's the reason why. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. In other words, God will repay. He will come and He will save you. Calling the nation of Israel to find their strength and their courage and their hope in Him in their time of weakness. Likewise, guys, it's not, it's not an issue of, of, of when or, or, or if, excuse me, but an issue of when. When our arms are hanging down. When we feel like giving up, when we're weary, when we're discouraged, when we're afraid, when every ounce of our being is shaking and trembling because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, when we have been injured as a result of even the bad choices that we've made, these self-inflicted wounds sometimes that we bring upon ourselves, where we find ourselves broken and in need of healing or when it's even the result of others' sinful actions. Guys, we need to get back on the straight path to be healed. And we do so by going to God. We must go to God. We must wait on Him to get the encouragement, the strength, and the wisdom that we need. And we're told as much in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28-31. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture, but it's incredibly encouraging. Again, this morning, when we look at it in this light, the author, the the prophet says, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, He never faints, nor is He weary. His wisdom, His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. Those who you would not expect it, right? The young whippersnappers who can just keep going. He says, even these guys, the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, guys, this is us, the author and finisher of our faith, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Where does your hope come from? Who is your strength found in? As we run this Christian race, living our lives by faith, we know this, guys, right? The end goal, the destination for us all is to lay hold of the prize. No first or second place finishers, just finishers. The gift of eternal life, which was won for us by Jesus. But there is also another reason to live by faith. Another goal for living by faith that we're to pursue in this life. It's not just about the destination. God cares about the journey. He cares about the relationship that we have with Him as we move towards the finish line. It's important. He died to have relationship with us, just not when we get across the finish line, but with us right now to know us and that we will know Him and it should change our life and the way that we, lo- we, we live our life. And, 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 and as we're told For this life, living by faith, that we're to pursue in this life, and verse 14 points out, when it tells us this, it says that what we are to pursue in this life is peace with all men and holiness before the Lord. 
And these things will affect the attitude, the state of being, the state of mind as we run this race. Whether we will be weary or discouraged or whether we will have joy in the peace of God. And because the reward of heaven, think about this now as we continue on with the thought that's already been made known to us. Because the reward of heaven has already been won for us, we can truthfully and honestly say that the reward of heaven, the eternal life, is the fruit of a life lived by faith. It is what is naturally manifested for those who live by faith. Reward, heaven, eternal life. And in the same manner, think about this as we now are on the journey pursuing peace and holiness before the Lord. In the same manner, peace with men and holiness before the Lord is also a fruit of the life that is lived by faith. It's just not behavioral things that take place on the outside. It's something that comes as a result of this newness on the inside. And in light of these goals to live by faith and pursue peace with all men and holiness, we're, we're told in verse 15, look here, to look carefully to the Lord so that we do not fall short of the grace of God. I've heard this scripture taught so many wrong ways, so many perverted ways. And if you've heard it any different than what I'm about to tell you now, I will tell you from the bottom of my heart with full confidence that what you've been taught is wrong. And I don't stand up here braggadociously in that, but I want to make it very, very clear because the book of Jude and in the book of James and a few other places in the New Testament writings, when it comes to people who have taken the grace of God and perverted it and altered it and made it to seem to be something other than what God says it is, God deals with it very harshly and very strictly. And so I want to make it clear that in light of this statement, in this light of this statement of us to look carefully to the Lord so that we do not fall short from the grace of God, I want to make it perfectly clear that the grace of God will never fail us. That's not what it's saying here. And I've heard people teach that in one form or fashion, that you can fall from the grace of God, that the grace of God will fail you because you have failed. That's not what this is saying. That's not true in any way. But the fact of the matter is this. This is what this Scripture is teaching us. This is what it's telling us is even though the grace of God will never fail us, the fact of the matter is, is that we can fail to take advantage of the grace of God. We can fail to take advantage of the grace of God. And sadly, when this happens, this is how we know we've done it. We either condemn ourselves for the things that we don't do or do, or we condemn others for the things that they do. And we know this is outside of the grace of God because the Bible tells us that those who are in Christ Jesus there is no longer any condemnation. And when we find ourselves in this place where our heart is condemning us, where we're condemning others, we have failed to take advantage of the grace of God. And somehow, in some way, in some fashion, fashion we have turned to relying upon ourselves, either for peace with men or holiness before the Lord, and we've let ourselves down, trying to do something we could never do. We have fallen from the grace of God because we've not taken advantage of it in this way, in this sense. And so to take advantage of God's grace means to keep ourselves and others from really the, 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 the return of this legalistic way of living where we think that we have to do things or be a certain way in order to earn the, the, the favor or the, 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 the whatever of God rather than understand that what God gives us is all as a result of the work that Jesus has done. 
And we do this either in, um, we can do this either in outward acts or even, even, I think, worse in regards to inward attitudes that will cause us to fall short of the grace of God. Self-righteousness, pride. And because the negative result of this is always, and because the negative result of this is always two things, we see here in Scripture that the, 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 that the first of it is a root of bitterness. When we see that we failed to take advantage of the grace of God, bitterness will result. That's what verse 15 says. And the result of bitterness is always trouble. It takes hold of our heart. And it's always trouble because a bitter root also always produces bitter fruit. And we're told that's not to be the case for us. The fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, should be manifested in our lives. Not the fruit of bitterness, but the fruit of love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And typically, bitterness is rooted in this. <laughs> this, is how, this is how a bitter root will take good of our heart is because it's rooted in some kind of sense of personal hurt. So-and-so did this to me. Or that happened to me. And usually along with that is this unwillingness to forgive, right? That's where bitterness can take hold. This has happened to me. It was unjustified, undeserved, and, and I'm not forgiving them. But we must remember that the grace, we must remember the grace that God freely gives to us, right? We must remember the grace that God has freely given to us in those moments, in those instances, in those times, and start giving this grace to others. What does that mean? Those who don't deserve it. Loving those who are undeserving. Now, the second negative result of us not taking advantage of God's grace is, as we see here in the verses that continue on through the example of Esau, is, is this living according to the desires of our flesh. So, if you're not taking advantage of the grace of God, one of the manifestations of that is condemnation of yourself or others, a root of bitterness, unforgiveness, but also it's living according to the desires of your flesh. In other words, it's when moral conduct is corrupt. It's when we choose the desires of self and the temporal things of this world over God's will or the eternal things that endure. And, and this point is illustrated here in verses 16 and 17 at the conclusion of our text for this morning by referencing Esau. Esau was the son of Isaac, the forefathers of the Jewish faith, the, the brother of Jacob. And in Genesis chapter 25, it tells us that Esau, who cared more about the immediate things and, and the temporary pleasures of this life, that he willingly traded his birthright, all of his inheritance. He was the firstborn. In the Jewish culture, not only did the firstborn get the inher uh, 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 an inheritance like all the other members of the family, all the other sons, he got the double portion. He would have a double portion of inheritance. But he willingly traded his double portion of his inheritance for the immediate pleasures of this life. It said for a stinking bowl of soup, Beans, stew, not steak, not prime rib. And so we, when we're given Esau as an example and, 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 and letting go of the grace of God, we're warned about this way of living in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where it says this. It says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, who we are His children. He is our Father. He says, but it's of the world. You see, we have an inheritance as well. And we don't trade the inheritance that God's given us, co-inheritors with Christ, for the things of this world. We're selling ourselves short. And he says, this is the reason why, because the world is passing away. And the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. In short, Corey, if you want to come up, we're, we're, we're going to wrap it up this morning. In short, Esau failed. Esau failed to act on the grace of God. What God had prepared for him, what God had given to him, what God had laid ahead of him. He failed to act on the grace of God by choosing to live for worldly things, by despising his birthright, and by not valuing the things of God. And, and the point of this to say, as we conclude, is to say that we must not fail to act on the grace of God by willingly indulging the desires of our flesh with the immediate pleasures of this life. Simply put, when we do so, we exchange the, the great things of God for lesser things. Remember, God's grace does not fail. But we can fail to depend upon we can fail to depend upon God's grace. And Lord, I pray that you would um, make this known to us if we've in aspects of our lives tried to go on, on our own. Lord, maybe we've justified it because of things that people've done to us. Maybe we've justified it when we've looked at ourselves and gone, we're not worthy, but Lord, you know that if it was um, your love and your favor and your promises, if they were conditional to our worthiness, Lord, then none of us would meet the mark. None of us would, would qualify. And you tell us, Lord, that while we were still in the midst of our sin, you died for us. You accepted us. You chose us. You promised us all of these things that we lay hold of through our faith in Jesus. You give them to us freely because of who you are, because of who we are in you. And so, Lord, if we're in this place where we're feeling weary and discouraged and defeated and fearful, I pray, God, that we would strengthen ourselves in who you are, remembering what you've done for us in the past, Lord, remembering what you promised to us in the future, remembering, Lord, that you're the author and the finisher of our faith, that you, are, you promised to complete the good work in us that we've done. And Lord, when we consider these things, this good work in us that you've done, when we consider these things, Father, may the weariness and the discouragement of this life fade away. May we be given joy, a joy and a peace, Lord, that can't be taken away by the things of this world. Lord, may we be different than those around us in this world, even though we go through the same things that the people in this world go through. May they see us as followers of you who love you. And may we, God, as being recipients of your grace, who lay hold of your grace, who take your grace, Lord, for um, every breath and every beat of our heart to sustain us, may we be ministers of your grace to those around us. May we willingly lay our lives down for you so that others may know you, that others may be loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray.